The Tools of a Scottish Hedge Witch. This podcast is specifically about what a hedge witch does today, and as best as we can piece together true historical accounts, what they once did. I'm a stickler for the truth, not fanciful things to satisfy people who want to dress up or claim to be a witch just to spook their Christian parents or the unenlightened. What you do should be your choice, however. There is no dogma here. Today we'll be looking at the working tools of a Scottish hedge witch, or rather, the lack of them. The main issue for me here is that one person's guesswork or creative writing becomes another person's dogma. Once it's been repeated and reprinted a thousand times, it becomes their facts, which they quote as though it was just like that. I'll put it to you that if you hold so strongly to any belief or idea, then you really need to reconsider why you believe that is so, and prove it to yourself by researching where that dogma or idea actually came from. Often you will find someone made it up quite recently. We won't be doing that here. We will be looking at what is known and verified, emphasising always that there is no such strict dogma in the true Scottish witchcraft practised by my ancestors. Whether what these cunning women, cunning men and highland seers and spaywives practised was even witchcraft as we understand it today is open to question. When it comes to hedge witchcraft, some things are assumed or borrowed from other pagan practices. Whether they were one and the same, no one is alive today to confirm or deny any of that. One basic tenet of paganism is that all paths to the creative life force are valid and are to be respected. The aim of these podcasts is to give you as true an idea of what went on as we possibly can. The only books referenced will be well over 100 years old and often were based on oral testimonies which the Scottish authors wrote down and published. If there is one thing I believe without question, it is the tradition of oral testimony, which has always played a big part in Scottish history. It's been part of our culture for literally thousands of years. It is the same tradition where in the early 14th century, the authors of the Declaration of Our Broth can tell you where the Scots were living when the Jews were living in Egypt, and that they originated in the land of Sumer, as an aside, I personally believe it was not a misspelling of summer. They were telling the reader straight that the Celts were descended from the Sumerians, a place which archaeology only confirmed in the centuries since then. Such is the power and reach of oral testimony, something which the Celtic nations have always done from prehistoric times when tales and history was passed on by mouth in absence of written language. So the scene is set to look at the tools of a Scottish hedge witch. It is indeed a fanciful notion to dress in a kilt and mark out a circle with a Scottish two-handed sword. But how real is this idea? More importantly, is it something a hedge witch would have done? Or is it something that an adept of goetic magic might have done. You see where I'm going here.
It is easy to merge these things into one another and assume it was so. We don't know. What we can say with certainty is that marking out a circle with a sword was well known at the time within Scotland. But this is ceremonial magic. While witches were being persecuted and having to keep their workings underground, ceremonial magicians could practice openly. The reason for this odd anomaly was based on the idea that the Christian church and state viewed witchcraft as a rival religion, while magic on the other hand was viewed as an unthreatening practice. In fact, many bishops were themselves often practicing magicians. But then the books of Henricus Cornelius Agrippa were commonly found in the private libraries of the aristocracy. The Elizabethan court magician and conjurator John Dee was also known to protect himself inside a circle. I know these books existed in Scotland because I've consulted them myself. The Bishop of Dunblane, for instance, had a fine collection stamped with the printer's devil. So evidence of certain practices being known and done could be mere coincidence and does not mean correlation. So in short, there were many flavours of the pagan practices going on. One nice piece of Scottish evidence of drawing a simple circle with a sword can be found in the tale of the Red Book of Appin, where the boy's master instructs his servant how to deal with the devil. Here's how the story goes. As you value your life, do as I tell you. His master gave him a sword and at the same time he told him to be sure and be at the place mentioned a while before sunset, and to draw a circle round himself with the point of his sword in the name of the Trinity. When you do this, draw a cross in the centre of the circle, upon which you will stand yourself, and do not move out of that position till the rising of the sun next morning. He also told him that the gentleman would wish him to come out of the circle to put his name in the book, but that upon no account was he to leave the circle. The master went on, he cannot touch a hair of your head if you keep inside of the circle. So long story short, actually the book of Appen is not that long a story and well worthy of a read. The devil was thwarted by a simple circle drawn with a sword. Worth pointing out here that owning an actual sword was a bit of a status symbol back in the day, so how likely is it that a typical hedge witch owned a sword? I know from my own family's case that after the Battle of Sheriff Muir it was not a good idea to have a sword in your house in case the army came to search for it. To be accused of being present at certain battles would have been confirmed just with the existence of the sword. Quite evident and real for me when my own great-grandfather found a claymore sword hidden carefully in the rafter of his cottage, a fascinating place in itself since it had a sundial on the wall, which was located in the vicinity of the said battle. Some ancestor had had the good sense to hide it. What we do know for sure is that Scottish hedge witches carried a magic staff called an Anlorgon, the use of such a staff was recorded in the writings of John Gregerson Campbell in 1902. 
Campbell made a point of recording oral testimonies. So it's more realistic and far more believable that that is what a hedge witch would have used to mark out a protective circle. Campbell later tells us, Evil spirits cannot bear the touch of cold steel, iron, or preferably steel, in any form as a protection. Though it is not obvious how or why against the fairies, an iron ring on the point of a staff is as good as a sword, but evil spirits are subdued by it only when made into a lethal weapon. Again we have that belief that iron is feared by the unseelie fairies. It certainly argues a strong case for whittling a staff of your own. Would affixing a steel washer to the foot of it do the job? Why not? It's really up to your imagination what you do with it. Need I even point out the usefulness and practicality of a staff just for walking the rocky mountainous paths of the Scottish Highlands? The staff serves the same function as the tools of other traditions. According to Raymond Buckland, he claimed it is the sword and the magic wand both rolled into one. Now I'm not sure about the veracity of that claim completely, since in my own tradition a wand was cut from a hawthorn tree. Hawthorn is certainly a native and commonly found tree in Scotland, so I see no reason to question my own traditions. Let's just say that they are interchangeable for some purposes. A staff can become quite cumbersome after all. So we'll leave that one there. The staff, however, is and remains the symbol of power and the premier tool. Generally, it is accepted that the staff is used to mark and consecrate a ritual circle. And it can be used to direct power into that circle. I like to think of it as being similar to the suit of wands. It's defensive in nature. There are no strict rules regarding the size of a staff. Chest height is a typical height for it. Although they could be as tall as you, much like the handmade walking staffs that you can often find in touristy shops where hill walkers frequent. There's no reason you couldn't just buy one there and then personalise and consecrate it. The thickness of the staff should be whatever you feel comfortable to hold, probably about one and a half inches in diameter. It's generally shaped like a regular straight walking stick with a pommel shape for a handle and tapering down to a point at the other narrower end. Almost any form of hardwood native to Scotland is a suitable wood for the staff. Oak, yew, walnut and ash being the most popular. I am personally a stickler for straightness, but that's not a hard and fast rule, just because something as straight as possible. Whether you leave the wood as natural, stain it or varnish it, it's really up to you. There are no rules. The next useful tool for a Scottish hedge witch is a Scottish dirk. This Scottish knife is the equivalent of anatomy. I'd argue here that a wand of hazel performs the same function and is a less intimidating item. Or even a little Scottish ski and do could be used which wins for me in size and practicalities. Truth is, a staff and a wand can do all that you need. This is an earth-based religion after all. Worth noting here that Campbell attributed these witches 
with nothing more than their magic staff. <laughs>